scratch and sniff. Five people have been killed and around 30 people injured in a suicide bombing in the Afghan capital, Kabul. And inside, 15-year-old Sahar Gul. Sold into marriage by her brother, she bears the wounds of six months of torture. As men swarmed into the shrine and beat Farkunda to death, then took her body to the banks of the river to set it alight. A man was detained in accusation of marrying a seven-year-old girl in Shabarhan city, capital of Extracts there from news reports around the world highlighting both the Taliban's attempt to regain control and the many challenges beyond facing women in Afghanistan today. My special guest escaped the war with a family over 20 years ago, eventually settling in England as a journalist and BBC producer. Her involvement in the internationally successful Afghan Women's Hour has since been adapted into her first book, Dear Zari, Hidden Stories from Women of Afghanistan, extracts of which are shared throughout this show. Zarguna Kaga, welcome to SNS Online. It's a privilege to have you on the show today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. I'd like to start by listening to your story and how you began in Afghanistan and ended up in England as a journalist. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I was born in Afghanistan in a time that the war was starting. And uh, I lived there for 11 years. Mm. And the civil war erupted in Afghanistan. So when you were young, the Russians were in control. What was life like then? Uh, I remember a lot of uh, rocket attacks, mm. but it was nice. Uh, Afghanistan was um, democratic in a sense that yeah, uh, it wasn't so strict for women and girls. And I went to a Russian-built school with Russian teachers. Uh, and the, uh, as a child, you're not aware of the politics that much and I wasn't and uh, all I remember from my childhood that we had very good teachers I was very lucky my father had a very good job and uh, we were family of girls all going to school uh, paying attention to education my father was always enforcing on that and uh, I wasn't uh, really aware of what was going on in the time of Cold War or Russian War with America and how Afghanistan would end up with the future for me. <laughs> Did you feel that uh, Russia brought something positive to Afghanistan? Oh, definitely. I, I remember positive things. I, um, I wasn't restricted as a girl from school. I wasn't restricted of what I wanted to wear. Uh, same women. I was used to seeing women on TV uh, singing and uh, in public sector. It That's was, outrageous. I know. <laughs> I know. So it was, it was definitely a positive time. But obviously behind the scene and in politics, a lot went on and a lot of people didn't like the way Afghanistan was w- working. Afghans didn't approve it. Did they just feel that um, Afghanistan was becoming too westernized and just uh, drifting from their religious core beliefs? Definitely. Definitely. There was, there was a strong movement among university students, among young people building up against the Soviet invasion. And uh, they were uh, working from countries like Pakistan and some in Iran and the Mujahideen were a force which were building up. But I was a child, so I didn't really understand at that time. But now I know why my schools were attacked, why my clinics or hospitals were attacked. It became a daily routine at school that whenever we heard the sound of a big explosion, we would leave our desks and follow the teacher to the corridor, which was considered a safe haven. But in the summer of 1989, one of those rockets changed my life. The first missile of the day landed in our school corridor, creating a huge explosion. It was so close by that the bang of the rocket rang in my ears. There was black smoke and dust everywhere. I could smell burning rubber. Children and teachers were running around in confusion and screaming. So clearly a very traumatic event for you, Zarguna, that you've documented in your books, Dear Zari. I know that a friend of yours died in that attack. Um, 
you say these were a lot of these were university students who were going against the Russians. So you know, obviously, these were bright, intelligent yeah. people, but who just uh, felt they should have a different uh, way of life. Very educated. They were university students. They were among people, and also during the Russian invasion, a lot of war was going on. It was like the time of. Uh, Russia war with America and uh, Afghan mujahideens were fighting in provinces mm. and they were fighting for the freedom. It was like an invasion by Russia uh, and uh, that was the cause for fight. Uh, yeah, and they were all educated people getting education abroad or even in the country. So regards to your own story, when did it come to crunch time when it, your family realised that uh, it wasn't safe to be living here anymore? And, and why was that particularly for your family? When the Russian regime collapsed and the Mujahideen entered Afghanistan, it was a chaos. It was a civil war erupted, different groups were fighting each other. And uh, there was no school, no clinics, no hospitals for us. And our house was attacked. So it was we had to escape and we went to Pakistan. But this was particularly because your father was working for uh, the media, for the government, the Russians. Yes. Yeah, and he was a minister during the communist regime. So it was not safe for him to live there anymore. He left before us. He went to Pakistan. We didn't have any contact with him. And uh, me and my sisters and my baby brother, we were left in Kabul. And uh, then some family friends helped us uh, to get to Pakistan. And then we finally were united with my father, who had escaped for his life there. Mm. And uh, then we started living in Peshawar. I grew up there. Mm. And uh, I went to a refugee school uh, that was for girls only. And uh, I went to a refugee college. Uh, and that was also for Afghan refugees. And I learned bits of journalism. But my school and my university has been the BBC because I joined the BBC education programs as a young student who wanted to learn. And I always wanted to be in radio. <laughs> well, so this was an amazing opportunity for you um, to not only escape the war and the regime change, but the fact that um, so many women who weren't getting education, you, you didn't just get the education by moving to Pakistan, you got some, some of the best. My livelihood. Yeah, yes, yes and uh, I thank the BBC for that. It's like, I've grown up in the BBC oh. in different parts and I, I, it has been a school for me. This is the BBC in Beijing. Kampala, Reykjavik, Delhi. Wherever you are, you're with the BBC. During the time when I was studying in Peshawar and I was learning to be a journalist with the BBC, uh, many girls were stopped from school. It was the Taliban era mm. and there was no way for us to go back. Uh, we are five sisters and uh, my family could never stand that, that the, their daughters will not go to school. And uh, then that's how we made our way to UK, to mm. London here. And uh, in 2001... I think, it was on my, I think it was on my birthday when you arrived at Heathrow Airport. It was August 14th. It was. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I read it in your book that we'll talk about in great detail later. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it was one of the best days. And I, even though I missed a lot of my friends and school classmates in Pakistan, but it was a total change of life. But for us, it was, or for me, for my family, it was somewhere that we wanted to come and settle down because we were tired of moving, escaping from war. Mm. And um, Britain was the place that we wanted to spend the rest of our lives. You've arrived in the UK. You're working for the BBC. When did you start working for Afghan Women's Hour, indeed the producer and presenter of Afghan Women's Hour? In 2004, I had joined the BBC because I had some experience of working in Pashto and Dari in Peshawar. So when I came, I joined the BBC news team. I was doing different shifts, different work. And then in 2004, the BBC Media Action was starting a special women's program. It was after the collapse of Taliban and the women's rights issues were big on agenda of the international community and the Foreign Office decided to fund a program that is specifically for women. And uh, our editor sent an email that whoever wants to send ideas about women and who has worked, because I had worked with many, many girls on children program in Peshawar with Afghan refugees 
that's how I thought like, oh, I sent an email straight away. It's like, oh, women should listen to this. Girls can listen to this from my experience. And I think he was, uh, he saw that I'm very, very much interested. And then I was chosen for it. این را که حقوق این گونه زنان و دختران در کدام موارد نقص می شود و دولت و دیگر سازمان های حقوقی برای حل مشکلات آنان چی گام های برداشته است در برنامه زن و جهان امروزی با من زرگونه کرگر بر روز دوشنبه در برنامه شامگاهی بی بی سی بشنوید So how many languages do you speak, just out of interest? Presumably English, Russian, um, <laughs> Russian Pashtu. My Russian is not so good. Okay. <laughs> Very basic, but mm-hmm. I speak Pashtu, Dari, which is Farsi equivalent, yeah. and Urdu as well. Mm. Have yeah. you noticed the way the English sort of get away with not speaking any other language a lot of the time? <laughs> of course, with my husband. <laughs> <laughs> right. He's trying to learn Pashtu. But <laughs> oh, bless him. Well, give a man a medal for I giving know. it. You know. So we're, we're, we're a bit hopeless, but you got to love us. <laughs> yes. Scratch and sniff. With Nick Randall. So you're working as a producer for the BBC World Service. You're dealing with women's issues in Afghanistan pre- and post-Taliban. Um, were you actually going back to Afghanistan to interview people or, or were there other stringers uh, involved? Yeah, I, I went on many occasions. Mm. Almost every year I went and met the reporters who are who were working with us. Because, mm. But we had reporters from all across Afghanistan, mm-hmm. women and young girls who were interested in listening to a program mm. that's specifically for women or they were coming with great ideas. The program was produced in London, but I would be in contact with the local reporters who were most all women. And at the beginning, we thought that the stories that we are going to broadcast, it will finish in a few months. Yes. It continued for 10 years. Amazing. I mean, when did you start to realize the the power of these broadcasts and, and the impact it was making on normal Afghan women and men's lives? The, the real impact that when I realized after two years of broadcast that... Okay more than 45% of the population of Afghanistan was listening, including men and women. And the audience feedback, that time it wasn't like social media now, it was uh, mostly letters written by grandsons on behalf of grandmothers and uh, phone calls or sending uh, phone messages. We had a messaging service (laughs) that they would record. (laughs) And uh, it it was amazing. It was uh, really extraordinary. The number of women who came forward to tell their stories, mm. to talk about the problems they were facing, to to share their experiences mm. and to, because we were celebrating women as well, mm. it was a start of an era for women, starting to get education, they were starting to become MPs, uh, provincial governors. Mm. We interviewed on Women's Hour almost every female MP in Afghan parliament because it was the first time and uh, we interviewed all the big Afghan officials mm. who were female. Because it was first time things were happening for women after a very, very dark era. And it must also be said that, of course, with the Taliban came no education for women and illiteracy. So obviously you're still dealing with that arc even when the Taliban had left. So was it something like 80, 85% of women were, were illiterate? So so obviously having a radio programme... of the population. At the moment, the UN estimates are like it's... Maybe 80 percent. What, now? Now. Because still, it was like a generation was left out of education. And and we saw it with women who were coming forward to work for Afghan Women's Hour. We had reporters who uh, might not be so, uh, like, articulate with what they were writing, but they were the best. They were the best in getting the stories from the local women. They were friends with them. Yeah. And they were like uh, their uh, local villagers coming forward to them because there was a, such a trust on Afghan women's hour. Mm-hmm. We dealt with it with care, with and passion. We celebrated, yeah, yes. and sensitivity yep. mm-hmm. issues of mm-hmm. not mentioning their real name or yes, if absolutely. we wanted to change their voice, yeah. Because, of course, you know, a lot of the women, it's it's very difficult from, from a Western perspective to, to to really understand the whole nature. It's very complex and layered. 
obviously connects with religious beliefs as well, but there's a lot of cultural stuff that gets absorbed. And because of illiteracy, quite often people aren't aware of their, their rights and they don't know what is religious doctrine and what has just become a traditional. And it always seems to be, based on everything I've read from your wonderful book, Dear Zari, seems to be very male preserve of, of controlling women. Yes, and uh, you are right when you say people needed education. Almost every expert that we invited on Afghan Women's Hour, the fact that they pressed on that wh- how can change come to the society is was like educate them, educate mm. men and women. And I, I'm a really, really, real believer in education, especially education for women. The things, cultural issues were forced upon them uh, in the belief that it was their religion. For example, uh, some women told me that, yeah, valuing your boy more than your your girl is a religious fact. It's not. Islam never tells you to differentiate between a boy and a girl Mm. or not to treat the girl child worse than the boy. They should be equal. They have equal rights, equal treatment, every child. And uh, so there were like some of these kind of beliefs, the uh, religious experts or human rights experts or women's rights experts discussed on our program. Mm. And we got really, really positive feedback. Zaguna, I really hope God will be kind to my mother this time. I so hope she gives birth to a boy, because if she doesn't, something terrible is going to happen. My father is planning to get married again, and the marriage will be in exchange for me. He's even chosen a girl who's the same age as me. In exchange for her, my father will give me to the other family's son. From your book, Dear Zari, Hidden Stories from Women of Afghanistan, many tales of women who haven't been able to produce a son, an heir if you like, who have been sold off or gambled off. Yeah, women women are used as... uh in Afghanistan, women are used as a as a mean of settling disputes. Mm. Um, a, a marriage for an uncle, for a father, and uh, women are used in exchange for uh, uh, having a bride for the brother. Mm. This mm. this is like part of this become part of culture, and uh, the young marriages are very very common in mm. Afghanistan. Uh, at the same time, forced marriages are very very common. I. I I think more than 90% of marriages in Afghanistan are mm. arranged. And when it comes to the marriages that are uh, young women are getting married to mm. older men or to like used for settling disputes, it's like um, forced marriages. And it's common all across mm. Afghanistan. What's the most extreme example in terms of age difference and young to old? I have seen brides who have been married in the age of nine and eight. That's shocking, isn't it? Yeah, Mm. but like a normal age for a girl to get married is just when she passes puberty. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Let's talk about some of the individual stories then in uh, Dear Zari. We have Nasreen's story, a woman who fell in love and... um, it looked like it was all going to go lovely and, and the proper romance with the man of her dreams and all the rest of it. But it, it just turned out that a, a jealous neighbour saw them sort of just chatting by mm-hmm. a tree or something like that and decided to make up stories of, you know, she was a loose woman and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, like I, falling in love is a big taboo in Afghanistan for women. <laughs> it is, <laughs> it's not an easy matter. And uh, for a girl... For the whole family, it becomes difficult because you're judged by the community, by the society. If your girl is like openly saying that oh, I'm in love with this man, and mm. uh, as an Afghan girl, you're not supposed to say those things. Mm. Mm. And yes, Nasrin's story is a, a very, very vivid example of like uh, she represents many, many women in Afghanistan. The women who are in prison mm. for moral crimes, for falling in love, or for. Uh, when the families don't allow her to marry, she has escaped with the lover. This is like a moral crime, and they are in prison. Mm. So these things uh, happen on, I, I'm not sure if I could say daily basis, but it is like a story that everybody knows. He kept repeating that I was his now, and when he smiled, 
I could see his yellow teeth. He was laughing, happy that he would soon be having sex with a 14-year-old virgin. A part of me died then, and my family ceased to exist for me. I'd extinguished any feelings I had for them. I mean, at the end of this particular story, um, because of this, this jealous neighbour, she was married off to some 60-year-old man who raped and beat her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that um, was her punishment yeah. for bringing shame to the family. Mm. Samira shut the door and went to kiss her baby sister, who was still sleeping on her mother's lap. She kissed her on the cheek and tried to wake her up, but she didn't stir. The mother then changed the baby's clothes and tried to breastfeed her. And much to her joy, the baby finally started to move her lips and tongue and began to suck on the nipple. Thank you, God. My baby daughter is alive. I'm a lucky mother. But mother, why did my baby sister sleep so long? What kind of medication did you give her? It was to do with the amount of opium I'd given her. It was more than usual. When you were a baby, I used to give it to you. It's because it makes babies sleep well. Otherwise, your sister would be disturbing her poor mother, who has to weave a huge carpet with her naughty sister. So Samira's story, she was a carpet weaver with her mother. Now, in some ways, that is something that is seen as a good thing in Afghanistan because it's a way for a woman to empower themselves and to earn extra money and to get um, more respect from the husband. Um, But uh, it's it's quite an unhealthy profession because there's lots of dust and fumes and all the rest of it. But in Samira's case, the mother was giving her baby opium to keep the child quiet, essentially. And um, this baby almost died, is that right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, opium he, for a baby seems that's, extraordinary. That's a, that's a common practice in areas where women do carpet weaving because there is no system as like childcare apart from like families who have elders who would look after your child. Mm. But if women are busy carpet weaving from dawn to the night, mm. then uh, what can they do? They, mm. What they do is like opium is cheap, it's available, and they think it's like a good thing for the baby that it relaxes them and they sleep for long hours and the mother has time. And Samira's story represents the story of many young girls who want to go to school. There is a there is a great appetite among Afghan girls for getting an education because they have seen, they have been through difficulty, they have been through the age of darkness, mm. I would call it, uh, when you are banned from just getting an education, can you mm. imagine? So the Afghan girls that I've met, most of them have had such a extraordinary interest in education. And Samira wants to go to school just mm. like her brother, mm-hmm. but she's forced to weave carpets because mm. the family sees her future in that way, that if you are better in carpet weaving, a good rich man will marry you soon and y- your future will be made because mm. you have a skill mm. that money will not have. Zaguna, I'm so happy. I think our life is finally going to change for the better. My mother is pregnant again, and we're all hoping that this time she'll give birth to a boy. I promised to pray for the outcome they longed for. So we get to Sharifa's story. Um, now, Afghan women tend to go on having babies until a son is born. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, they've gone up to, to 10 children to achieve their goal, which seems extraordinary. Yes. Sons are favoured and daughters can be neglected or treated like rag dolls in the corner, I think was the, a quote from your book. Mm-hmm. And also, it's common practice in Afghanistan for girls to be exchanged for a wife for her brother, or in in, um, in her case, a second wife for her father. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the father had to marry. the Her mother didn't give birth to a son. So mm. her father thought that if he remarries, which happens in Afghanistan, mm. then they will have a son. Where is Wahid? I screamed. And where is my daughter? Why will no one tell me what's going on? You won't see them again, my darling. She held me closer to her. They're not coming back to you. I began to weep. I couldn't understand what was happening. My mother was crying now. Wasma, my child, that so-called husband of yours has said, now you're disabled. He can't live with you. He's going to marry someone else. I was very shocked by Wajma's story. Somebody who had um, the good marriage, but mm-hmm. um, due to a rocket attack in Kabul, she lost a leg, was disabled, 
And then the, the husband just decided that, oh, no, she's, she's a bit tainted now. I'd, I'd rather mm. not bother with her anymore. There are many women in Afghanistan who have disabled husbands and mm. they look after them mm. greatly. It is When it comes to a woman, it is seen differently. Women are considered second-class citizens in many, many parts of the country. And But for me, Wajma is an example of the resilience that mm. an Afghan woman has. Mm. I think the, the appetite that she had for hard work, even though when she was disabled, we met her in a... The Kabul center in a center for disabled people in mm. an NGO. She was sewing clothes and selling those clothes mm-hmm. in the market, and still managed to meet her daughter. She she had such a strength. A woman who has gone through so much, uh, become disabled with a rocket attack, and then the husband disowns her mm. and takes the her daughter from her. It was just heartbreaking, but the resilience that she has, and I hope. She's happy now. It's. I will never forget her. I will mm. never forget uh, forget her story, and I will never forget the um, the cruelness of the husband. Uh, and it has happened in other cases. Uh, and uh, once you're a woman, when you're not considered an equal class citizen, and then when you become disabled, if you're single, many many people will not marry you. Mm. And if you're married, in some cases, what happened to Wajma happens to them. And it also seems to me that um, even some women can turn on other women. Um, women who have got their lives settled are, are more empowered and uh, they will bring another woman into the family just to be used as a slave. Uh, I mean, it's not exactly girl power, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not girl power. And unfortunately, all over the world, we see examples of... Yeah. women who uh, turn up against other women mm. or mm. they can't see other women getting somewhere that they wanted to go. Yeah. That's unfortunate of a human being, I think, not specifically to Afghanistan. You're listening to Zarguna Kaga on SNS Online. And don't forget, you can download this and any other show for free by visiting SoundCloud and searching for SNS Online. Further shows can be found on Mixcloud by searching for me, Nick Randall. And finally, don't forget our Facebook page, SNS Online, and Twitter, which is Scratch and Tweet. Now, a very important factor with women getting married is the fact that they have to be pure. They have to be a virgin. And the likelihood is they are going to be a virgin. But there's this sort of unwritten ritual on the wedding night. Do you want to talk about him? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it is a ritual that it's belief of people that if a woman is virgin on the first wedding night, uh, when she meets the husband, she has to bleed. Mm. And if women who haven't bled on the wedding night, even though they have been virgin, it's because of lack of information. Mm. Then the husbands or the she has to cope with the bad attitude of the husband, the family, the family has to check that she was virgin. It's like a, a myth, mm, mm, <laughs> almost. Mm. And it, is it doesn't really prove anything. The, yeah, yeah, it doesn't prove anything. Mm. But the info, lack of information, medical information, mm. a lack of information about biology in schools, in uh, what they learn, uh, what men and women learn, mm. there is no such thing as sex education in Afghanistan. Mm. So that had, has caused many, many problems for many, many young brides. I mean, it's not as yeah. if they're even told by their mothers, oh, um, you know, you need to, not even the reasons why, but just make sure you yeah. do and don't flush it down the loo or something. Because yes. I think there was one lady like who it. did f- f- flush because it was not very nice. Yeah. And then, and then she didn't have the, the proof. And she was very she... young when she got married. So like no one told her about this information. Mm. And she You can't win, can you? Although my husband seemed pleased that his wife was a virgin, reassuring me that he was happy I was a pure woman, he did warn me that I would have some questions to answer. I still didn't get it. I just didn't realise that the absence of my virginal blood on a handkerchief would scar me all my married life. She told me that she lived with it for all her life. When I met her, she had 
three, four children. Mm. And she was still living with the fact that, yeah, they thought she wasn't a virgin and she wasn't a good woman when they married her. Mm. It was a shame and all that. She lived with it and it had really, really upset her, mm. even though the husband was uh, nice to her mm. uh, after the marriage and she's happily married. But the whole attitude of the family has had changed. One of our final book illustrations now. I found this one particularly tough. Mother, I've come to you. I want to leave him. I cannot live in a house that God doesn't bless. Jabbar is a dirty man. He's having an un-Islamic relationship with a boy. I don't want to be with a Cooney. Keep your voice down, Anasa. Some things are better kept to yourself. Your sister-in-law is in the house, and if she hears this, she'll spread the news to her family. Then everyone will know your business. If you divorce, you will not be allowed to keep your children and they will be called the children of a Cooney. What are you thinking? In our culture, women are expected to die in the house where they are married. Now, one of the most shocking stories I've found, being a gay man, is to find that, um, and I understand the fact that in Afghanistan and all the rest of it, being gay is going to be very difficult and you're going to be very closeted and you might want to get married to hide that fact. But um, this man didn't sound very nice at all. The wedding night, he was being entertained with dancing boys uh, with bells on their ankles and uh, makeup on and stuff like that. And he, he was very drugged up. And I think he just had sex with her just to prove his manhood and get her pregnant. Mm -hmm. And then she basically lived as a slave when he introduced his uh, his live-in boyfriend mm -hmm. and um, really sort of rubbed her nose in it. Uh, I mean, I can understand there's resentment of his situation, but I mean... To be quite so disrespectful on top of that, it, yeah. it's just, it just seemed outrageous. Yes, yeah. Anissa's life was very difficult. And the sad thing is that we couldn't get her story on radio. Mm. That was oh. the sad thing because it was so sensitive. The mm. whole discussion of topping, uh, discussing the topic of being gay yeah. or homosexual yeah. is just so... Yep. Uh, was not so right mm. for the society. The uh, medical experts that we wanted to invite to explain or the experts on the issue we wanted to, I don't know if there is such thing as uh, explain, but we wanted to say that these things exist in societies and communities and it existed. Well, it's just mm. something that it is there. Mm. You know, you cannot argue, but it was so difficult for them. Some of the experts told me that if we discuss this openly on your radio show, People will not respect us in the community. Oh. So you can see. But yes, on the other hand, there's um, dancing boys. Mm. Uh, there are young boys that are used by older men. Mm. It's uh, child abuse, basically. Yeah. But uh, they're mostly from poor families. And like Anissa's husband, he was rich. Mm. He had a boy from a poor family who lived with him, who was the boyfriend, basically. Mm. But mm. because there is no such understanding of being gay in Afghanistan. So it was like all done in a way that he needed to get married and have a wife and some children as well, just mm. to show that, oh, he has a family. Uh, but uh, naturally, he was gay. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, uh, because of the whole community and the society, I think, it ended very bad. For, and the victim was Anissa in it. Yeah. Always the women. So when did you decide to write a book about all the experiences you'd heard about in Afghan Women's Hour? Uh, I decided to uh, make a collection of the stories that I thought they would make very powerful stories to write because these are these 13 stories are chosen as examples of like millions of other women that will go through this. And uh, in, it was 2005, and actually, it was after when I met Wajma and recorded her interview. I thought, actually, I just cannot leave these stories to just go away with a radio program. And even though radio program is very important for Afghan audience and they're listening to it and we are doing it, I thought it's very important to uh, let the internationals know mm -hmm. because I wanted to give the voice of Afghan women to a broader audience. I wanted to... It, Afghanistan was discussed almost every day on news. The soldiers were travelling north to Lashkargar when the explosion happened just over the Helmand border in Kandahar province. <laughs> SBS chief political correspondent Karen Middleton is embedded with the Australian Defence Force in Uruzgan province. 
Tonight on Dispatches, we meet the resurgent Taliban and see how the war on terror has come back to haunt Afghanistan. Military intervention, fighting, Taliban, Afghan power, Afghan government, women's rights. And I thought, okay, actually there is a very huge um, gap here. Uh, among the audience, among the people who whose sons are going to Afghanistan from here, from Britain, and they're fighting there. Mm. I wanted to give information about what is really life like for Afghan women and why it's important that the international community stands by them. And this, it was in 2005, I decided, I made a collection of the stories that I wanted. It changed a little bit. It took me a long time to reach a publisher and then, yeah, get accepted for publishing. And in 2009, I got the publishing deal. Fantastic, yeah, fantastic. Random House wanted to... Random House as well. Yeah. Round of applause for Random House. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, I worked with some just great bunch of women, great, great editors. And yeah, it was, they were all caring and the book came mm. out. So the, the power of a book plus all those years of Afghan women's hour, how much in, in real terms do you think that has changed Afghanistan women and their education and uh, awareness of their legal rights etc I was actually thinking it's a very timely question I was thinking about the change in my own life and uh, it was actually yesterday and I was thinking about the fine women of post 2001 post Taliban that the Afghan women are trained and worked. And like I, the Afghan women are reporters. Some of them went to the parliament. Uh, some are working with young people. Some are like, they are all very, very talented women. And they are all standing for women's rights, for equality. And they understand the gender issue very importantly, deeply. And they fight for it almost on everyday basis. And for myself... I think Afghan women's are and the work I did with women made me who I am today. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I, I see that. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. No, I mean, you know, yeah. totally. Yeah. I think I, you, it, you've kept the best of, of both cultures, you know. Yeah, yeah I, I hope so. I hope that I will continue to keep mm. it. And uh, it has given me opportunity to understand the uh, really what women should try for and what it has given me clear objections or objectives mm-hmm. for my future. Mm-hmm. It has given me clear uh, picture of how I want to carry on my career. And I want to focus more on women and I want mm-hmm. to focus more on education for women mm-hmm. and girls. That's why I did the Girl Rising documentary. I was 11 years old when my father arranged for me to be married. So Girl Rising, tell us a little bit about that and the whole process you went Girl, through to do that. Yeah, Girl Rising is a documentary. It's uh, in the centre of a international campaign for education for girls around the world. And uh, in the documentary, there are stories of nine girls from nine countries around the world where girls have been facing difficulties in getting education. One is Afghan story, which I have written the Afghan story, Amena story. It's a story of a schoolgirl who faces young marriages and all sorts of things that is in Dear Zari, you could imagine. So this is fiction, but based on... on... No, no, it's we met the real uh, girl in Afghanistan, okay, I went. Right. Yeah, mm. it's a real story, but we just had to change the name. And sure, absolutely. In the documentary, the other stories are played by real girls. They appear in the documentary, but with the Afghan story, we had to use an actress mm. because we couldn't disclose the identity of the school girl sure, that we sure. spoke to. So it is just a huge campaign for... A, Education for girls around the world, including India, Egypt, uh, Africa, 
Afghanistan. So, so how widely distributed does this film be? I think it does seem to be on available on YouTube at the moment. Yes. <laughs> and also it's on available on DVD and it was on Netflix right. for a few ah, months. Yeah. Right. Let's do a <laughs> plug. Let's do a plug. <laughs> yeah, it has a big online page and it is a, it's a huge campaign and it's mm. going to be included in school curriculum. I will read. I will study. I will learn. If you try to stop me, I will just try harder. If you stop me, there will be other girls who rise up and take my place. Now there's nothing to stop me. I feel I can do anything. And it's all a woman project. The stories are written by women, uh, authors from those countries. They're played by girls and uh, they're voiced by um, Hollywood actresses like Meryl Streep and... Anne Hathaway has done the Afghan story. Hey, fantastic. <laughs> so she's reading. This the, is very cool. Yeah. So Hobnobbing of the stars. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's like it's a great campaign for Absolutely. a great cause. Okay, I think we should take um I think we should take a little break from all the uh all the heavy focus stuff <laughs> and um, take a musical break with what we call Desert Island Risks or the soundtrack of your life. So basically it's a it's a piece of music that might inspire you professionally, personally or just because it makes your feet tap or all three. Oh, I have a very favourite Afghan song. Okay, fantastic. By, by a woman mm-hmm. and it is one of our folk songs and it is uh, whoever goes to Afghanistan will have heard this song. I'm sure you have. Uh, it is uh, a love song and it's always played in the spring and uh, the woman is singing for her lover uh, to go together with her to Mazar and for the um, blue mosque in Mazar Mm -hmm. to do their love prayer and it is a very romantic song and most of the women on Afghan women are loved to hear it and we had a slot where women did their singing with tumble playing for us and most of them sang this song Mullah Mama John it's called Yo que buri ma 
This year, NATO troops are pulling out of Afghanistan, bringing to an official close 13 years of the war against the Taliban, which has left thousands of Afghan and foreign soldiers dead. Now on Radio 4, Zaguna Kaga, a former presenter of BBC Afghan Women's Hour, hears from Afghan and British women whose husbands have died in the conflict in The War Widows of Afghanistan. come home, I was just doing tea, it must have been about half past five, and there was a knock at the door. And when I answered the door and there was two men dressed in black, and they flashed the army ID card, and they just said, I just need to inform you that your husband's dead, and that was it. Let's talk about your documentary for Radio 4, The War Widows of Afghanistan. I found that very interesting because Clearly, you went to Afghanistan first to get the experiences of the widows there and then took that sound back to play to widows in this country to compare the, the rights. And uh, the lack of rights in Afghanistan were extraordinary. I mean, they were just completely left vulnerable by the husbands being dead. Whereas in this country, they were being supported by pensions and uh, family and friends were allowed to work, etc. Yes, uh, war widows... Uh I always wanted to do something for the widows of Afghanistan because I knew once a husband dies in Afghanistan, the woman loses everything, not only like financially, but because all the man is usually the breadwinner in the family. And when a woman loses husbands, uh, husband, it is just like her life almost st- stops. Mm. Yeah, like in terms of feeding the children, in terms of another marriage, in terms of freedom as personal freedom. And uh, also, I, I, I wanted to, um, again, during the whole 13 years, a lot of soldiers from America, from Britain, from different countries have been fighting in Afghanistan, one enemy, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And alongside them, Afghan soldiers have been fighting. And these military officers uh, have lost lives. Mm. Some of them have lost lives and they have left families behind. And I thought it's an important part of the war that the media has forgotten mm. the life and the effects of losing your loved one in a war. Well, it's an estimated... different, yeah. Yeah, uh, estimated 13,000 men in Afghan forces, I think, and 453, I think, British soldiers who yeah. were among the many thousands of soldiers who died. So, it's, I mean, we're talking about a huge amount of huge. people who are left, women who are left. Yeah, yeah and sadly, uh, um, Afghan army, or Afghan soldiers still die. Mm. And it has continued. That was last year's figures. And it has continued. They have continued to lose lives. They have continued to live, leave widows behind and the support and uh, the system is not there for mm, them, mm. just like it is here for British widows. Yeah. Well, without a husband, she finds herself without status, money, yeah. moving to parents' house or something like that. And um, yeah. yeah. And also, like, uh, I wanted to uh, showcase and just hear from the British widows. I, I thought... They didn't know what happens in an Afghan widow's life. Mm. And they were shocked almost. They mm. were, uh, their husbands died for this war and the widows were left like that. And just for both sides to hear each other's experiences and reflect on it. And as women, though, they shared the feel of loss, the feel of losing yes. loved one of course, in a war. Yes. Yeah, it was all the same. Mm. It didn't matter when it came to feeling. It didn't matter whether they lived in a, in a big... Uh, two-story house in England or in a, like, mad house in Kabul. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I heard the noise of a car arriving. It was snowing outside. My son called out, It's Daddy! I went out and saw him in the coffin, surrounded by a lot of soldiers. They had shot him in his heart. When they brought his body, I flung myself on him and started screaming. How does Ashraf Ghani, the new president of Afghanistan, compare to a President Karzai, who many people felt was more of a moderate and um, was perhaps considered in some quarters a bit of a nodding dog in terms of strings being pulled by warlords, etc.? Did you feel that uh, things have developed since Karzai's time? 
Well, in Karzai's time, in his presidency, a lot changed. Okay. Great achievements. Mm. And he had the international community behind him. The mm. whole international community was present there. Lots of money went in there. Lots of aid projects went there. And uh, women achieved a lot during his time. And uh, Ashraf Ghani has, uh, is kind of continuing on the legacy that Karzai left mm. behind. A parliament, elections... So it, these things all started in his time. But uh, our new president is a moderate man, and I have met him, mm. uh, and I've spoken to him. And uh, he has made women's rights and equality for all women and girls one of his top priorities from his election times. But Afghanistan is at war. It hasn't been easy or it hasn't been quick. And just recently he's promised that he will be appointing more women on the government levels and mm. we he has appointed women as ministers as well and of course his wife is now officially yes. first lady as and well we have a first lady mm. who is in public who speaks about women's rights and she is working with many women which is fantastic yeah which is very good news for women across afghanistan and uh, uh, afghan women have lots of hope for both the president and especially the first lady who is like it's first time we see them we see a first lady karzai's wife was always in hiding. He, yeah. She never appeared in public or like uh, many women criticized that she didn't do much for women. Right. As a, as a doctor, she was a gynecologist, but Rula Ghani is uh, very active since mm. the president has taken job and she's promised a lot. She has uh, been the voice for women. I thought it'd be nice to end our book illustrations with a more upbeat story, although it doesn't begin that way. Margot's story, she was very happily married until her husband died in a car accident. Um, he was a taxi driver. So obviously she was left uh, with children and very vulnerable, but she turned the situation around. For a while after my husband's death, I had lost the will to live. If I closed my eyes, though, I could see his kind face and hear his voice telling me never to lose hope. I vowed to myself that I would become the breadwinner, that I would be the mother whose children went to school and became teachers and doctors. Uh, yeah, she had a lovely marriage. And as we know, uh, around the world, all marriages or all men are not bad and all women Of course are not. not. Bad. Yeah, and <laughs> it's just because the book is a collection of stories of each aspect of <laughs> sadness in Afghan woman's life. I wanted to add Margul's story to it. Absolutely. It's like a story of success. She makes success out of nothing. Yes, absolutely. And when she lost her husband, she was left almost... Uh, on the street with her children, to, mm. four children to look after. And she had this idea that you know, she will make kites with her kids. Mm. She made sure her kids went to school. She made sure they had good food. She made sure to earn. And she decided that, yes, so what if I'm a woman in Afghan society? Mm. I will do some work and I can do it at my home. And she is another example of the resilience and the courage that Afghan women have for keeping their families together, for... Uh, doing things for them out of nothing. I think many women in her place would have lost almost every hope and would have uh, been starving, but she didn't. Magul is a role model for me. <laughs> I see myself and my children as being magicians for other children. With a few pieces of wood, some sheets of coloured paper and wire, we can make a doll dance in the sky. I like to think that in those kites are carried the hopes and dreams of Afghan children, soaring and swooping in the sky, freely. Fareshta, my youngest daughter, once told me, Mother, when I put this flower on the kite, it makes me happy. I can see the bright colour of the flower in the sky when it's flying and feel like I'm flying too, because I've made it. And the Azari Hidden Stories from Women of Afghanistan is available online and from all good bookshops. So, Sakuni, what 
would happen if the Taliban came back? I mean, do you think there's any way with dialogue that the Taliban could actually evolve into something more progressive? Or do you not think that's possible? It seems to me that dialogue ultimately will be the only way to deal with this. I, I think so, yeah. The dialogue will be the ultimate way, or maybe not. But uh, uh, speaking as a woman, as an Afghan woman, who have spent years yeah. under... Uh, or like in, in and know about the rule of the Taliban. It is a big fear for women. Yeah. Afghanistan and the situation for women has changed a lot in the last 13 years. We have women in peace. We are we have teachers. We have women ministers working uh, side by side by Maine. We have university students going abroad for education. And uh, unless they accept these things, the real rights for women, I think it will be very, very difficult and challenging for them to be part of a government or to or uh, a challenge. And if it happens, uh, I don't know how they could get guarantees or the international community or the Afghan government could get guarantees that this is going to be one of the conditions that women will be the same. Mm -hmm. Women will have the same rights. Uh, and uh, I hope that will happen. But at the same time, Afghan people need peace. 13 Absolutely. years of war at the moment, it's mm -hmm. not ending. Still, there are attacks today. There were nine aid workers shot dead in their office. So it's it's uh, they are tired of war, and especially women who are the first victims in war. Mm -hmm. They've lost husbands, they've lost children, they've lost families, they've lost homes, and they suffer a lot. You're listening to Zarguna Kaga on SNS Online. So, Zarguna, you're now a producer for BBC World Television, which is a um, fantastic achievement again. But uh, w let's look at, say, 10, 15 years' time. What is the future like for Zarguna Kaga? I hope to be writing more. I'm planning okay. to write my next book, which will be a novel. Right. Uh, it will be a fiction, <laughs> hopefully, mm. but obviously in every fiction, I think the stories come from real experiences. Mm -hmm. And it's, again, story of women. Um, uh, and uh, I'm really looking forward to writing it. I haven't started it yet, but the idea is there, and I've spoken to my publisher, and they, yeah, they oh, are willing. Yeah, so uh, that's hopefully very, I will very be. That's an exclusive, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm hoping to work on a, a Women's Hour program for Pakistan as well, for okay. women in Pakistan. Right. So hopefully that is just a charity project that I will be doing. And in a few years' time, I hope that. Uh, I would have done more for women, mm. more work for women. Do you think you might be a UN ambassador at some point in your life? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I would like to be. Yeah, why not? I think you're aiming in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, I do enjoy my job at the moment, but I, I do want to focus more on writing and working for women and girls. And on that note, that's a fantastic way to, to end this interview, Zaku Nukaga. I'm just going to pass you your as we call celebrity goodie bag, oh. because everybody gets them. So, oh, so there you go. Thank you so much. <laughs> what a lovely present for an Afghan woman. And, oh, um, that is lovely. So Kaga, thank you for joining me today. And our thanks also go to Marion Marshall and the BBC's Afghan service. Our next show features independent Manchester band Puppet Rebellion. But until then, from me, Nick Randall, goodbye. Pray God you can go. Before 2001, females were deprived of an education. Since then, they have been given the chance to learn and they come to school with the Islamic hijab. Seven months ago, I introduced you to a young woman named Bibi. She had suffered brutality at the hands of her Taliban husband and somehow willed herself to live. Sunita Alizadeh, 
she is the youngest rap female singer in Afghanistan. She represents millions of girls. More than two million girls are now in school. Some women are able to work, even in the most public of jobs. Thank you to God, for whom we all are equal. One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. I am Zarguna Kargar. I'm an Afghan woman, and I'm a proud feminist. Respected elders, and my dear brothers and sisters, Assalamu Alaikum. Just make it go.